Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast today, Miriam Bargudi. Miriam is a journalist and writer living in Ramallah in the West Bank, and we invited her, of course, to talk about Palestine. So, Miriam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great. Why don't we start talking about um, what's been going on with Gaza and um, anything that you'd like to say about the situation? Our listeners should have a basic understanding of what's been going on. We've been updating them, but um, anything you'd like to talk about, please. So the situation in Gaza right now has reached points beyond travesty and tragedy. And I think every time in terms of media production, when Palestinians are sharing their testimonies, the little documentation that they have, it's either seen as hyperbole um, or, or it's been normalized or justified by criminalizing the, pop- the 2.2 million population, 1.6 of whom are currently homeless um, under the rain, haven't had any water or fuel or food enter uh, the 360 kilometers since October 7th. The Palestinians who remain stuck in the northern and central areas of Gaza um, are, are facing execution-style killings. Shifa Hospital has a graveyard, a mass grave, in inside the hospital because Israel has been shooting with live ammunition directly at medical staff or bombing it using tanks that, that are American-reinforced. So they've been burying people inside the hospital. And you have Israeli media um, or Israeli military spokesperson going out and, and filming videos showing a knife uh, and, and a flak jacket as evidence for why they did this to the population in Shifa Hospital. That is the excuse they're using. And then saying there's no trace of hostages. And mind you, in 1983 um, and in the early 80s, the Israeli military built a bunker under Shifa Hospital belonging to them. So it's also very telling of why they targeted this hospital and how sinister it is. There is a genocide happening, and it, it's really important that people register that because it is being reinforced by policymakers, especially American policymakers, that after 42 days have not managed to bring a couple of hours or a few days of a ceasefire so that water and fuel can enter the strip of a mostly child and youth population. So I, I, I want to try and condense as briefly as possible what is happening, but you can't, you can't because the list of crimes expands and we literally only know about 20% of, of what's happened in Gaza. The number of killings is around 15,568 confirmed, but estimated numbers are reaching 20,000. Um, and this is discounting those missing under the rubble. Mariam, as you you know observe what's happening and and watch the way that the Israeli military and Israeli officials are trying to justify uh, what's going on in Gaza and the way that it's been uh, reported, the way that the U.S. government has sort of parroted those justifications, and yet it seems like at every step of the way those justifications fall apart or or at least partially fall apart with just a little bit of pushing, and yet there's never there hasn't been a point yet which is is uh, I guess shouldn't be shocking to me, but is on some level where there's any pushback, where there's any like, geez, you know, these stories are not holding up. Do you do you feel like we could get to a point like that, or is it is it you know do you feel like this is just how it's 
uh, it's going to go. I think it's only going to get worse from here. On on the first week uh, of 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 the war on Gaza, you had CNN reporters and then repeated by President Biden of an artificial intelligence made photo claiming that Hamas had done that crime, that heinous crime um, of of burning babies. We saw it posted by Ben Shapiro, reiterated by CNN without verification, repeated by U.S. President Biden. And that set the premise for having 20,000 Palestinians killed in that week. And I still have it written on my wall. We had 650 Palestinians killed. Nobody said anything. Instead, it was relegated as, oh, it's just, you know, Hamas being killed. And then targeting a civilian population. Militarily, Israel has not been able to target Qassam fighters. Um, and there are approximately an estimated 30,000, according to analysts. But it has managed to kill more than 15,000 Palestinians, civilians, most of whom I, I believe 75%, if not more, are children and youth. And then the, the other third are women um, and the other third are elderly. So it shows you that militarily, they haven't really done any advancement. They have just inflicted this collective, uh, this collective punishment on the population with the goal of expelling Palestinians to Sinai. The second week of the war, you had the Israeli um, uh, media organizations reporting in Hebrew, reporting about an application for Palestinians to be expelled to Sinai. This is the second week of the war. Right now, most Palestinians in Gaza have had to evacuate to the south, which is still being bombed with U.S. Air, uh, US and Israeli airstrikes, I should say, because the United States of America has deployed its military on the ground using things like the Delta unit um, to fight with Israelis in committing this genocide. So that from the first week, it showed you that the goal was to kill and dispossess Palestinians, but to try and carve a narrative that will justify this to the masses. Because after you have killed most Palestinians and the rest you have expelled as refugees, who cares? Who cares what will happen at that point? You don't have enough. And that's what we see with the media blackout in Gaza and the cutting of phones and, and the bombing of the telecommunications company. Um, they don't want the world to see. So they're never held accountable for it. And the U.S. as well, policymakers, as well as those of the European Union, as well as mainstream media, have pushed for that narrative. This is their doing as well. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and the balance between this intense focus, especially over the last few days, but there seems to be this consistent kind of focus on micro stories within the bigger picture. And it, it almost obscures the bigger picture. It hides to me, uh, the, the, just how massive the violence has been here and how many people have died. And the last few days, it's been the focus on Shifa hospital. And you don't want to give short shrift to that because this is a serious humanitarian situation. There are thousands of people trapped in there, this kind of farcical at this point search for the the hamas headquarters uh, is causing you know human misery and yet it does feel like it's pulling it's supposed to pull your attention away from the fact that the bombing is still going on that people are still dying by the dozens and uh you know each one of these things can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and uh how you re re respond to it yeah so one of israel's strategies in terms of dispossessing palestinians it, it its origins come from Operation Dalit in 1948. And this is when Zionist militia displaced Palestinians from heartland Palestine. And this is present day Israel. Heartland Palestine is cities like Yaffa, 
Safa, Tel Aviv. The, these are Palestinian um, cities and towns that were dispossessed in 1948. Just until recently, we're still finding the mass graves across Tel Aviv. Um, and what we are witnessing in Gaza is, again, a response to that. So focusing on the microcosm um, uh, picture in, in the reporting is also an emphasis on trying to deviate uh, uh, attention away from the fact that this is a mass expulsion um, and, and the slaughters are parts of it, the depletion of fuel are parts of it. The entire picture is that this is a genocidal regime that has built a state on top of a population and then legitimized itself through um, international networks and organizations by claiming to be a normal state when in essence it is an apartheid state. You have Israel right now, you know, for example, again, beyond Gaza, in the West Bank, arming settlers sprawled around the West Bank. And you should know very well that the West Bank has been demilitarized in the 1990s. Palestinians do not own weapons. They are not allowed to own weapons. The only people in the West Bank that have weapons are the Palestinian security forces. And their weapons are registered with the Israeli Ministry um, of Interior and, and, and Defense. So you need to understand we're, we're sitting ducks as well in the West Bank um, and facing a different form of Israel's practices in Gaza. In Gaza, it is forcing genocide. In the West Bank, it's going to do a military invasion and, and allow green light settlers in civilian clothing to just start killing Palestinians. Because since October 7th, we have witnessed an escalation in Israeli settlers in the West Bank from mountaintops shooting and killing Palestinians. And, and, and across time, they're never held accountable. So focusing on the small negates the fact that people need to begin delegitimizing the concept of the state of Israel. I, I do want to talk more about the West Bank, but I, I have one last uh, question. I know your your time is, is of the essence, so I don't want to uh, spend too much more time. But I do have one more question about Gaza, which is... Um, Yesterday, I think Al Jazeera and uh, it may have been in a couple of other outlets reported that people in southern Gaza and Khan Yunus had started receiving, started getting flyers, airdrop leaflets uh, from the Israelis telling them to evacuate. Of course, the question is where could they possibly evacuate at this point? But I I'm, I'm curious if you have tracked that story and what's happening uh, in southern Gaza. Are people preparing for the IDF to uh, to show up there and, 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 you know, having now obliterated northern Gaza, are they preparing for the, the IDF to show up on their doorstep? I have no idea. I can't answer that anymore because the Gaza Strip has been fully cut off telecommunications for the past 48 hours. So we actually don't know how people feel. We're not able to speak with them. Um, you know, you have daughters that are outside of Gaza trying to reach their mothers in Rafah, in the south. But you also need to understand that 49% of killings by Israeli airstrikes happened in the south. So even when they were early on, three weeks before in the war, when uh, Israeli um, helicopters dropped, leaflet telling Palestinians evacuate to this area, they would subsequently and immediately bomb that area. Um, there is no safe passage. You have Shifa Hospital right now. And, you know, keep in mind, that 117 medical facilities have been destroyed um, throughout th this entire war. And 26 out of 35 hospitals have either been completely destroyed or completely out of service. There's maybe two or three that are still managing to keep 
people alive, like the premature babies um, or, or otherwise. But Israeli soldiers are denying safe passage. There is no infrastructure of streets. So you should also understand that the only way from North Gaza or Central Gaza to the South is a seven-hour walk. Most of Gaza's population suffers from, from amputation from the previous wars. So people actually, in terms of physically, they can't even walk. Um, you have people that are wounded that, again, they can't walk 20 minutes, let alone seven. So the only thing I know is that everyone I'm managing to reach contact with in Gaza is saying, please, Please tell me there's good news about a ceasefire. And I really, that one, that one question is older managing a ceasefire. And after 42 days, the world couldn't manage a ceasefire or the bravery to airdrop international aid. Not a single state thought to do that. We only drop bombs on people. In the West Bank, which I think gives the, the game away here to some degree. What's happening there um, makes out this this notion that this is purely about self-defense to be a very difficult case to make and what, what's happening in Gaza. Can you talk about the extent of the violence in the West Bank? I think we've seen a doubling. This was already the deadliest year uh, or on track to be the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank. And as many people have been killed since October 7th as were killed the entire rest of the year, I think at this point. Um, we've also seen settlers attacking Palestinian communities. We've seen them leaving threatening notes like, you know, get out of here or we're going to attack you and, you know, depopulating entire villages. Can you give people a sense of, of just how bad things have gotten in the West Bank? So you've had, it's not only the deadliest year in the West Bank, but it was the deadliest year in 2022. So what Israel did in January 2023, up until October 6th, 2023, they managed to kill double the number of Palestinians killed in 2022 combined. That is just in, within seven months. Since October 7th, Israel has killed the same amount of Palestinians it has killed in those seven months, in the span of 42 days. So the intensification of killing has, has been exponential. And then you have the increase in just settlers pulling up a pistol and shooting a Palestinian. And again, no accountability whatsoever. Palestinians don't own weapons except the small battalions and, and uh, brigades around the West Bank, such as Jenin in the north and Nablus in the north, um, as well as Hebron in the south. But for the past two weeks, Israel has been invading these refugee camps um, and small towns in an attempt, again, just like Gaza, to quell armed Palestinians and target terror, they've actually mostly been killing non-combatants and civilians, also cutting off water, also cutting off electricity and telecommunications from these areas in the West Bank. And you have settlers, they're, they're not just saying we're going to attack you, they're saying death to Arabs. They're actually calling for the death of Arabs. Um, and this is a chant that's been chanted since you know, I want to say 2021, but since 2021 on media. But historically, that's been the chance for Palestinians. And Benigvir, the Minister of National Security, just called for a reinforcement of arms. 30,000 assault rifles distributed uh, like he's giving out candy in settlements around the West Bank in the last three weeks. So arming these settlers with this much weapons 
recognizing that they've been promising to kill Palestinians. And they have actually been lynching Palestinians with Israeli citizenship in, in the past few weeks, um, who are emboldened because of the silence and tolerance of the world historically across time. But again, it's been 42 days when it managed to get any fuel or water into Gaza because the Israeli army is refusing it. Um, so they have the same emboldenment of the army. And, and there, there are settlements every 300 meters uh, in the West Bank or a military base. So Palestinian towns and cities are literally shut overnight. Right now, I can't travel between cities because there are military checkpoints that are closing them. And they're holding pregnant women on checkpoints in the heat for hours. Um, you're having Palestinians shot point blank at a checkpoint. And again, the only active resistance of armed resistance that is available to Palestinians is, is very, very small um, in comparison. And again, Israel is doing the same thing to these areas with these armed youth, such as refugee camps and small villages and towns, as it is in Gaza, collective punishment and depletion of any capacity for life, so that anyone that is not killed is forced out. And it's, it's, I don't think people understand why this is dangerous, but in 1948, Palestinians were displaced from their homes only by a few kilometers. And it, then Israel took over. You need to understand, why do we have refugees in the West Bank? Why do you have internally displaced persons that are literally three kilometers away from their ancestral home from 75 years ago, unable to go? Because Israel raises these villages, leaves no remnants, and then builds on top of them um, parks or... Uh, you know, by the beach, they have a parking lot in Tel Aviv on the mass grave. So it's, it's, that's why it's so dangerous that you don't have to fly someone out of the area. Just move them out of the house and take over. And that's what we're seeing. Miriam, again, I know that uh, your schedule is packed, so we don't want to keep you. But um, I, there's so many other things we could talk about. And I hope you will, you'll uh, come back and we can have uh, continue the conversation. But um, as, as a final question, I, I want to turn to the role that the U.S. government has played in this uh, story. And specifically, mm -hmm. what do you think it's going to take for uh, people at the highest levels of the U.S. government to acknowledge that th the humanity of Palestinians, they, the, these, these people are fully human, they deserve all the same rights and protections of, of you know, anybody else. It, it strikes me that some of the comments that have come out of Joe Biden's mouth in particular over the last month and a half could not be made. You couldn't look at the the images and hear the stories coming out of Gaza and say things like, I don't believe them when they, you know, I don't believe their casualty numbers or I don't, you know, there's no chance of a ceasefire. It's not happening. Like you couldn't be that callous if you actually thought that these were real human beings suffering. And I'm, I, I just wonder if you see any hope for that to change uh, at, at the highest levels of the U.S. government, not not in the sort of staffing levels, but the people who make policy. I think American policymakers are bred by American supremacy. And it's also this belief that America and the United States government cannot be held accountable for its participation and perpetuation of crimes around the world. We have seen what the U.S. has done in, in Iraq. We have seen what they have done in Afghanistan. Um, it was never held accountable for the crimes that committed there, even though right now you have former uh, CIA uh, directors that that report it was a mistake 
that even strategically it was such a mistake. And yet you see this continuously repeat. So American policy really needs to address the roots of where it justifies this genocide and participate in it. I have hope in people in terms of policymakers and representatives that's very much entwined also with the weapons market. It's, it's really important to recognize that, that Netanyahu has been privatizing many of Israeli national companies that design and distribute weapons in the United States. Um, so the link between that and why there is still a continuation of supporting um, Israeli genocide, and it's not justifying Israeli genocide, it's, it's an active, direct accomplice. As we have heard, we are allies and we will never waver that with Israel and the United States. So that's just going to continue um, in participation. That's the only time I will ever have hope for American policymakers to change and shift course is when American policymakers also recognize that they are a colonial state built on indigenous land for crimes and massacres until now is they are unable to recognize. On that note, we'll leave it there. Mariam Barghouti, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, our thoughts to you and, and everyone in the territories who's dealing with uh, the situation now. Uh, best thank wishes so to, much. to all of you. Thanks so much. We got this. Thank you.